Previously on Gigdemin Pause. The funny thing is that I find the most important authors, mature, old, completely neglected, that have never been, you know, uh, translated. I found a, a huge, a huge author from Romania uh, called Gheorghe Sasarman. He's a huge figure in Romanian science fiction, just completely unknown you know but uh, this is the thing we are so used to read everything from the US and the UK and when I say everything I mean the top and the mid and the low <laughs> that we just don't consider it the best of France the best of Germany the best of India, the best of China, the best of Russia, the best of Italy. I mean, uh, what is the cultural net loss of this strategy? It's, it's huge. It's huge. 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 Today on Geekdeming Powers. But I think more and more in recent years, um, I see a lot of uh, Israeli authors who try and base their works on where they are on the language, on the Israeli settings, on Jewish themes, on you know, the time and place in which they live. And this is the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, I think um, part of my job is finding original texts. And I think original texts have to relate in some way uh, to the time and place where their authors are producing them. Uh, so this is the thing that I'm looking for and sometimes even find, uh, which is always a great pleasure. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hassan, and this is Geekdom in Pals. Geekdom in Pals is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people who make up almost all of the geek world. This is us. By talking to each person, by hearing their story, Geekdom in Pals creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world, each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. Today's guest is Noah Menheim, a fellow geek and an editor in Israel's biggest publishing company. She is responsible for many books, including genre books, by original Israeli authors. So today she'll talk about her geek origins, about the way she got her editing job in a scene which can only exist in movies, about the slash pile and about the trends in the Israeli genre slash pile. And I uh, should also talk about what an editor's job really is, which I think is illuminating. Let's listen. Can you tell me your origin story as a geek? <laughs> um, I guess it's a really typical origin story. I was um, a lonely girl with not a lot of friends. Um, which naturally led me to the library. Um, and I've spent many hours there um, reading everything that I could reach. Uh, and one day the librarian 
gave me a small stool uh, and said, you can just climb as high as you want. Uh, and that is when I started reaching the books that became my stepping stone into geekdom. <laughs> Which books were on the higher shelves? Um, a lot of Asimov, um, a lot of fantasy, um, I would say like high fantasy, uh, Tolkien, um, there was a Wheel of Time, you know, the basic building stones of uh, the 80s uh, reading verse of geeks. Okay, and uh, so what is the next step? What happened then? Um, the next step was drawing me further into that world. The second step was uh, reading more and socializing less. Um, it took me a long time to find, to even know there was a community. Um, I was living in Jerusalem in a very small neighborhood, a uh, very isolated one. Um, I grew up in the old city and lived uh, in the Jewish quarter of the old city. Uh, it was a religious environment um, and a very small uh, community. Uh, and only when I joined, not even when I joined the army, I think when I moved to Tel Aviv, I was looking for books. Uh, that's the, that's the theme here. So I was looking for books and I wandered in to this small, rather dingy, uh, secondhand bookstore, uh, with, uh, a very large bearded guy sitting behind the counter smoking cigarettes. Um, it was, well, I don't think it, even then it was allowed, but it was more tolerated. Uh, and the whole store smelled like cigarettes and coffee and old paper, which is till this day, one of the best smells in the world. Um, and I was looking through is the, the store on Allenby Street. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. yeah. It was uh, it was a store called Mat Eden, east of Eden. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking through the shelves and somehow we struck up a conversation uh, and I left the store with a pile, it was bigger than the screen, um, of old Fantasia 2000 uh, copies. It was a very uh, esteemed old science fiction magazine. Uh, which I collected avidly, but had a lot of uh, issues missing. So I just bought the whole set. Uh, and since that day, I just came back there every week. Uh, we met there on Fridays. Um, and there were a lot of like-minded people who came by. And we used to sit and talk and eat and smoke and um, exchange uh, ideas and thoughts about the books we read and the movies we watched. And for the first time, I had a geek community that I could bond to, that I could feel that I'm part of. Um, and that store became one of the most important places in my life. I met my husband there. Uh, I, met, I met the best friends that I still have. It was more than 20 years ago. And they're now like part of my family. Uh, so it really changed my my actual life and my geek life. Wow, it's an amazing story. 
Uh, I know that store. I love that store. When I moved away to 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 uh, live with my uh, with my wife uh, ten years ago, more than ten years ago, uh, I had to give back like uh, seven full boxes of books, and he, he he bought all the books. And then I used to go to the store, and then I say, I like that book. Oh, it's mine. <laughs> Sounds familiar. I have an unwritten contract with Kobe, the owner, that um, if I die before he does, which is not very likely because of, as I said, the smoking, um, he gets to have my collection. Oh, so, wow. yes, I'm eating very healthily. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go back just a second. You grew up in the Jewish quarter of uh, Old Jerusalem. So I'm, I'm guessing that science fiction is not a real uh, hot thing in, you know, uh, the more orthodox community? Not necessarily. Um, I think, first of all, I had the privilege of being born to parents who were very uh, enthusiastic readers, and there was absolutely nothing banned um, in regards of what we chose to read. Uh, in our house, although my parents were religious, we could read whatever we wanted. Um, and also, I think it never came up uh, in my upbringing. I mean, the fact that, you know, somehow my religion, because I was religious um, up to and including in the army, I just um, uh, lapsed after my service. Um, it never came up as a contradiction. I think today uh, ideas are much more polarized than they were. Uh, and also the neighborhood, I mean, it sounds very like religious and, and um, even extreme when you think about the location was our house was right across the Wailing Wall. Um, but Back then, and I'm talking like the late 70s, early 80s, it was more like Jaffa. It was very uh, cosmopolitan. There were a lot of uh, religious Jews and non-religious Jews and artists and hippies and Arabs and Christians. And it was a real feeling of like a joint community. Uh, and people are much more open-minded than I think the people who are living, in, living there now. Uh, we sold our house to a religious school eventually. So it was very, very different than it was uh, back then. Um, so I think it was never, you know, it was never regarded as antithesis of my faith or anything like that. Okay, good. Thank you. So let's move back to we were fans, met a community, and then you turned it into a profession or um kind of yeah and also the genesis was uh was that store i was talking about because uh the owner opened a small publishing house and started translating some of the books he liked and were never translated into hebrew and one of them was this book i'm <laughs> Uh, it's a quote from Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, in which was one of the books he loved and by that time was not yet translated into Hebrew. And he uh, suggested I translate it. 
and I was like, wh- how, what, and why would I ever do something like that? My English is not good enough. My Hebrew is not good enough. I've never translated anything in my life. Um, but he insisted. He thought it. He thought I could do it. And I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just give it a go. Whatever. Um, by that time, I was studying film and television in Tel Aviv uh, University uh, and working in another bookstore. <laughs> um, and the translation took a while. And during that time, I also began writing literary reviews for um, a local newspaper in Tel Aviv. Um, and I completed the translation, it came out. It was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. Um, the work itself and the book, which is one of my favorite books of all times, uh, the privilege of being able to somehow um, render the English words into Hebrew was uh, really an amazing experience, as I said. And um, I started to get my footing in the world while I was doing this translation. I started realizing that words were uh, my stock and trade. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be working with words. And it made me drop out because I realized that maybe film and television, all this spectacle and screen uh, was not where I was heading. I moved to the screenwriters um, department and then just left um, without completing my degree. <laughs> I have to, I have to admit, uh, only many, many years later. Um, and I started writing full time for newspapers, uh, literary reviews, and later became uh, an editor. Uh, and I'm now editor in chief of Hebrew literature department of uh, the largest publishing house in Israel. So I completed my uh, finish. Give, give me the name. Kinez Moad Vil Publishing House. Okay. So what is, what is that like? Being an editor? Yes. Um, it's the best job in the world, uh, for me at least. When I got the job, I was already a reviewer for about 10 years uh, and I loved it. I mean, it was every Sunday morning, I would hear a knock on the door, open the door, there was a stack of books on my doorstep. And all I had to do was read the books and tell people about them. I mean, for me, it was like the dream job. I'm that annoying person who walks in the street, sees a guy, grabs him and tells him, you know, I read this amazing book. You have to hear about it. And now I had the opportunity of doing this for, you know, the public and being paid a very small amount of money for it, but being paid for it. Uh, and I thought that was like the best thing ever. And after 10 years of that, I got a call from the person who was then at the head of the publishing house where I work now. His name was Doval Fon. Uh, he's now the editor of the La Bellation, the uh, renowned French newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, he suggested I came for a meeting. And I came, I was very upset. I thought that he was about to chasten me for writing um, bad reviews about the books they published. And when I walked into the office, I didn't even give him a chance to say whatever it is he wanted to say. I just, you know, pounded my fist on the 
table and I said, I think that it's um, absurd that the editor in chief of the largest publishing house in Israel uh, invites like this nobody reviewer from a local newspaper to you know give me uh, grief about the reviews I'm writing. If you want to get better reviews, you should publish better books. And he did not burst into hilarious laughter. It was very restrained. And then he said, you know, if you think our books are so bad, why don't you join us and do something about it? I was like, what? You're offering me the job? <laughs> I, what? <laughs> I was really shocked. Um, and although I would not have blamed him if at that point he would think me a complete idiot and just withdrew his proposal, he stuck with it and he said, yes, we would like you to um, um, join us and see if uh, this job suits you. Um, and I said, yes, and I've never regretted it since. It was really one of the best decisions I've ever made. It's a scene um, out of a movie. Sorry? It's a scene, it's a scene out of a movie. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, and I think it's the pleasure of it is, I mean, when you're a reviewer, this is the way I, I see it now, of course. Um, it's like being a pathologist. I mean, you get the book and the book is done. Mm -hmm. It's dead. I mean, it's just sitting there. It's fixed in time and place. There's no change that can be made. It's just the thing. And you, read it and you can analyze it and you can, you know, say whatever it is that you feel about it, but there's no movement. There's nothing that can happen anymore. And being an editor is like being a doctor. It's like looking at the thing and trying to, through the symptoms, um, understand what is the problem, if there is a problem, but what is the problem and working with the author uh, on fixing it and making the book better. And it's dynamic, it's always changing, it's never boring because each book is like a new adventure, it's a new you know, journey. Um, so it never gets boring. I get to work with the thing that I love most, which is books um, and with the authors themselves, which is always um, interesting, never easy, uh, challenging. Oh, and you get to work now with uh, original Israeli writers, uh, that write science fiction or fantasy, right? You That's get to choose from the slush pile, uh, you see what's happening and uh, you get to work with them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the offers that you see now? Um, well, there is a, I would say, always, I mean, this not that this is not, this has not changed since um, the beginning of, uh, of me working here. It's been oh, from 2005, I started. There will always be manuscripts that are very um, derivative, uh, that are a, I would say, simulation or um, heavily influenced by other works. 
um, high fantasy, a lot of high fantasy, um, some science fiction, not a lot, but they're all very similar to um, American science fiction or um, American or British high fantasy. Uh, not very original stuff. A lot of the times it could be very good. It could be very um, thought out, uh, researched. I mean, it's not uh, a commentary on the quality, but the genre or the uh, uh, themes are not very original. Um, I see a lot of uh, science fiction and uh, fantasy written by people who have not read or watched any. Uh, and they think that they invented something that they did not. Um, I had, I remember many years ago, there was someone who sent us a manuscript in which you could transport yourself by the power of your mind from mm -hmm. place to place. And I wrote back and I said, it was very nicely uh, written. It was very thought out, but I think that he should maybe look into other works who explored this, you know, uh, this topic, this method of transportation, and maybe try and find a way to fit in with, you know, what is else out there. And he said, someone else has written about this. It's like, yes, maybe look into Theodore Sturgeon, you know, it's been explored and you should really familiarize yourself with the genre before you venture into it. Um, so this is another thing that I see. Um, but I think more and more in recent years, um, I see a lot of uh, Israeli authors who try and base their works on where they are, on the language, on the Israeli settings, on Jewish themes on you know, the time and place in which they live. And this is the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, I think um, part of my job is finding original texts. And I think original texts have to relate in some way uh, to the time and place where their authors are producing them. Uh, so this is the thing that I'm looking for and sometimes even find. Uh, which is always a great pleasure. And what kind of authors do you work with? Like, if if the listeners could read Hebrew, what what should they read that has gone under uh, through you? Uh, there are at least three, uh, no, two novels that I edited that uh, were translated into English and are available for English uh, audiences. Uh, one is The Heart of the Circle by Karen Lanzmann. And the other is, uh, I'm not even sure how they translated the name, but I think uh, it's the same in uh, English. It's called Simantov by Asafa Sheri. They were both published by Angry Robot uh, Publishing in uh, Britain and are available in uh, England and the UK, uh, uh, the UK and the US uh, uh, as well. Um, and they're both urban fantasies. Um, one 
I think, no, you know what? Both are very much reliant on um, Jewish themes and try and uh, use the very complicated history that Judaism has with witchcraft uh, as the main element of the plot. And what is it like, like when you walk with authors and you say, you know, you analyze, you try to fix, it's sometimes not, not easy to, you know, it could hurt the ego, it could hurt, you know, the belief in uh, books, the belief that they should be published by you, you know, how do you um, manage that? Well, for me, a lot of editing is um, psychological, I would say. I mean, I work with the authors through methods that are more um, linked, I think, to the world of uh, analysis and psychology than to literature, because uh, you have to work with the author, not with the book. I don't write anything for them. I don't, I mean, I edit, I write my questions. I cross out what I think should be crossed out, but I can never replace the author. Uh, so I have to work at the book through the author. And for that, you need to convince them that you're right. You have to be very precise. You have to be, um, very persuasive, <laughs> which I, I hope I am, uh, and convince them that you know what you're talking about. But ultimately, after uh, all my you know, preaching and explaining and, and insisting and uh, using my wiles to persuade them, persuade them that I know what they should do and this is what should be done, the minute my work is done is when the author says, I understand, I even agree with you, but this is the way I want it. And this is the way it's gonna be. Because this is the minute where for me, the author assumes responsibility for the text. And that is the moment where my work ends because it's not to, I mean, what I do is not there to make the book as similar to what I envision. It is to help the author uh, get to the best version of the book he or she wanted to write. So it's not about being right. It's not about scoring. It's not about getting the book out the way I think it should be. It's about there to assist the author in perfecting or making his or hers um, writing as polished, as precise as possible. I found recently, maybe I've grown up a bit, uh, uh, that when an editor says, you know, this is X, and I, you know, when it should be Y, it should have been Y, it's X. Uh, and it doesn't, and I clearly see that it's not X, but what I'm trying to solve today that I didn't in the past is say, why would, why would that person think that it takes what caused them to think that it's like that and try to find the solution to that? 
mm-hmm. rather than you know the solution that they suggest. I try to find what where the problem was, where the mistake was that could lead to something that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That took me a few decades. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at this with every book that I edit. And since it's not only that the authors change and I work with a lot of different authors, it's that every book, even if with the same author, is a different journey with different problems and different solutions. And I'm really, you know, I, I'm challenged daily with each text that I'm editing. Um, and I also think that, I mean, I always give my authors a lot of, um, solutions to the problems that I see that, you know, uh, arise from the text, but I never intend them to use them. I mean, uh, the right solution is never my solution. They're always there in order to, uh, like open their minds and make sure that they realize that there are other ways of thinking about this. But I'm never like disappointed if I have this amazing solution to whatever it is. And the author says, no, I want to do something different. That's great. That's amazing. They should find their own way of um, fixing or, you know, um, expanding or um, you know, solving this, whatever it is that is wrong with the text and not use my solutions. Um, when I was a student way back when uh, I was thinking about being a filmmaker, um, we had this uh, class where we gave reviews to each other. We you know, gave feedback on each other's scripts. And one of the girls brought her script and she read it out. And I had a lot of, you know, I thought smart things to say. I was very you know, fluent more than I am now because I was using Hebrew. Um, I was very sure of myself. I was very, you know, I thought I gave really good feedback and the teacher was um, um, very thoughtful while, while, while I was speaking, he didn't stop me. And, but the, at the end he said, you know, that's interesting what you said, but that's not her script. That's what maybe you want to write, but that's not her script. Um, and I was, you know, I was really shocked because I thought that, you know, he said really smart stuff. Um, but when I thought about it, I realized he was right. Uh, and this is one of the things that I carry with me throughout the years to make sure that the book that I'm trying to reach and that I'm working on is not the book in my head. It's not the book that I want, it's the authors. And there's a lot of um, um, boundaries that have to be drawn between author and uh, editor. Uh, And I have to keep watch. I have to make sure that I'm not venturing into territories that are not mine, that have to be the author's um, domain. Um, so, and this is something that you have to, you know, especially with books you love, you know, the, I have really the great privilege of working on texts, which I love. I choose what I work on and I choose only the things that, uh, you know, speak to me. Uh, and when it's something that you love dearly and you care about is there's an actual real danger of you wanting to intervene too much, wanting to do too much. Uh, and I'm, 
a rather forceful editor. <laughs> um, and I have to hold myself back a lot of the times and not say uh, and do whatever it is that I'm you know, planning on doing because you have to um, safeguard the um, uh, author's boundaries and my own. Which leads me exactly to my last question. When you pick a book, when you at, at what stage, if at all, within the picking or the editing, do you think about the audience, how many people would buy? Because you also probably have a responsibility to the publisher that the books should sell. Uh, so where does that come in? Well, unfortunately, in the genres that we're talking about now, um, the Israeli audience is very small. It's not only very small, it's, um, it's something that I could quantify pretty precisely. I mean, I could tell you exactly how many uh, readers of um, original um, science fiction fantasy are there out there in Israel. Uh, and we're talking about mm, approximately 1,500, 2,000 people. That's a very small audience. We have yet to find the book that would break these boundaries. I mean, it's either a um, mainstream author writing something within the genre or that could be somehow associated with the genre. And then there is a much larger readership. But if we're talking about writers who are writing, I would say pure, although there's no such thing, but um, declared, okay, owned genre, um, there is a very small readership. And yet, one of the benefits, many, many benefits of working for a large publishing house is that my margin for error is a little wider. I can experiment a little more. I can trust that the fact that we have very strong mainstream um, catalog uh, and authors that carry a lot of um, uh, readers with them gives me like a buffer. I have like a little bit of you know, wiggle room and they can publish things that may have smaller audiences from the get-go. I mean, I know from the beginning that this is not going to be a huge bestseller. It's not going to reach, you know, 2,000, uh, sorry, 20,000 um, people, uh, but a, a much smaller readership. And I have to take this into consideration, but uh, that means I can only do these experiments once in a while. I mean, I can't publish whatever I want, whenever I want it, but I can sometimes try and um, insert into the literary bloodstream uh, things that are not as sure uh, as, uh, you know, the big names that I know that would sell well. Um, so I have to be you know, always with one foot on each side of the fence. I mean, 
you know, I want the book. I love the author. I love the genre. I think it's important for any kind of culture to have margins. Uh, I think a lot of the problem that I see in Israeli literature today uh, comes from not having wide enough margins. There's not a lot of genre literature here of any sorts. I mean, the only genres really taking root here is, I would say, like thrillers or detective novels or you know things in that department. There's hardly any, I don't know, uh, chiclet or um, there's now a growing number of writers of erotic uh, fiction and uh, romance, but there used to be none. Um, so there's not a lot of genre fiction here. There's mainstream, um, you know, high, uh, high end literature. Uh, and I think that's not healthy. I think that uh, culturally and literary uh, needs to have a margin and needs genre fiction in order to be uh, healthy. Uh, so a lot of the times, even if I don't think that the book is going to have a huge readership, I think it has a cultural importance and literary importance, and I would uh, publish it anyway. <laughs> nice. So are there any places where people can, uh, uh, do you want people to find you to uh, on the web? Uh, I have a Facebook page. I can be reached through. Um, after many years of abstaining from Facebook, I joined it just as it was declining. <laughs> That's the time to join. <laughs> so I can be reached through there. Thank you to Noah Menheim. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Now, next episode is our 50th episode. And as I've told you over the last few episodes, I've got a very special guest whose name I will not mention, Bill Plimpton. And we are lucky enough to have him. He will talk about how to do your own thing, even when uh, no one believes in you, how to stick it out for a long time. Uh, he will have a lot of advice for us creators. And he will... So come back in two days for our 50th episode. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geektomimpulse.com. Hasson is spelled H-A-S-S-O-N. The website is geektomimpulse.com. On Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, we're at geektomimpulse. Check out our YouTube, where I upload these episodes. And they are most interesting in video, by the way. And if you want to check out my other podcast, The Squashbuckler Diaries, it's an experiment in epic fantasy. Feel free to check it out, The Squashbuckler Diaries. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.